Very large crowd for me. Uh, but let me thank you for this privilege uh, of coming and sharing the, the word with you this morning. I hope as you came in, you are able to receive a, a listening guide. Uh, it's a half sheet of paper uh, that, that, that you have uh, there. It's to, uh, it's to, do, to serve two purposes. Uh, it is to, to give you a, uh, a mechanism that you can go back this week, uh, throughout the week, and you can study and meditate over what we have taught and what we have attempted uh, to teach this morning uh, from the book of Numbers. And as my wife, uh, she is always teasing me, she says it's more for, instead of instructional, it's more to keep you awake during my sermon. Uh, and everything, and so uh, to fill in the blank. So as we go uh, throughout the teaching, I'll let you know when we're to uh, the close where we're filling in the blanks there on the on the listening guide, so that you can uh, uh, have that to take back with you this week. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Numbers this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Numbers chapter five. To Numbers chapter five. Uh, one of the things that I've been uh, privileged to do at the at Five Stones Fellowship is that we have uh, teaching. Well, the way that we operate is that we teach through books of the Bible, uh, and we take a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse, and that does uh, uh, us good in the fact that we are covering the whole counsel of God and not just the things that makes us feel good. Uh, we're actually covering everything. Uh, throughout the text. And I remember uh, one of the elderly ladies that came up to me uh, after church after I announced that we're going to be going through the book of Numbers. And she looked at me real funny. Uh, and uh, she said, I, I, I don't know why we're going through the book of Numbers. What does that have to teach us? Well, at the conclusion of the book of Numbers, she came back that same Sunday and she said, Brother Junior, I want to thank you for going through the book of Numbers uh, because the New Testament is so much more meaningful to me today because of what we have looked at through what the, uh, the ceremonies and the things that, that went through the Old Testament that gave us a picture of what the New Testament would be. Uh, but if you're there at Numbers chapter 5, uh, let us bow for a word of prayer and we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, I just want to lift your name up this morning as the sole resource of my speaking to these folks this morning. I understand that it's not under my power and it's not under my ability or my charismatic personality and, or whatever it may be, but it is through your Holy Spirit that you will work among this group of folks and allow them to understand the words in which we were about to read. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that, that you will make my accent clear. Uh, Lord, I know that uh, it's difficult to understand a southern uh, Tennessee uh, accent sometimes here in, the, in Africa. And I just pray that you will just uh, help us to be understandable and help us to be clear in the teaching this morning. Have your way in this place, we pray. Amen. All right, I'll be reading from uh, the New American Standard Version this morning. Uh, I normally read through the, 
uh, through the ESV, but uh, I didn't know what kind of challenges I would have in eyesight in my, in my New American Standard Bible is large print. And so that, that will uh, help me definitely as I, as I read this morning. Uh, but we're going to actually look at two different segments of, of chapter 5 in verses 1 through 10. We're going to look at uh, the holiness of God. Now, I don't know whether you know that much about the book of Numbers or not, but the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at, you may look at it and read and think, well, this isn't really talking about the holiness of God, but yet it is talking about the holiness of God. It's talking about how we as human beings have to interact in order to be pleasing before a holy God. And so when we look at the book of Numbers, I want to kind of set the... Uh, the background a little bit with you. Uh, What we're reading here this morning were some instructions that God gave the people of Israel. When the people of Israel went down into Egypt, they went down as a family. Uh, There was about 70 of them. But when they came out of Egypt, they came out as a nation. And when they came out as a nation, they had never been a nation before. So God gave them some guidelines, some rules uh, and some, uh, some ideals and, or some standards in which they should live by in order to be a nation and in order to be a nation pleasing to God. And so when we read these things in the book of Numbers, they're not just made up things, but they all have a reason behind in which they were written. So the first section that we're going to look at, we're going to look at verses 4, as we'll call it part 1. And then we'll look at verses 5 through 10 as part 2. But verses 1 through 4, I want us to think about these are unintentional defilements. These are things that we may not have control over that defile us before a holy God. Now, in the camp, when we read these scripture passages, I want you to imagine with me As the people of Israel left Egypt and they started toward the promised land, God gave them a command and when they stopped to rest and to sleep for the night, they had an orderly way in which they camped. Now I want you to imagine this with me. There were 12 tribes. Uh, There were three tribes that would uh, camp on the east side. There would be three camps, uh, tribes that would camp on the north side on the west and on the south. But in the middle would be the holy tabernacle. And the reason it was in the middle, can you guess, is because God is to be the center of our lives and our activity. So in order for the holiness of God to be in the center in that tabernacle, the people had to be holy. They had to adhere to what God would have them to be in order for him to come and dwell in their midst, in that holy tabernacle. So let's look at what it says in verses 1 through 5, or 4 first. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile the camp where I dwell in the midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. 
the sons of Israel did. So let's look at those three uh, unintentional defilements that's being talked about. First of all, there is leprosy. And I gave you some scripture passages out to the right of that to where you could go back and read exactly what leprosy meant. Uh, what did that uh, what did that involve as far as a physical impurity? And there was a second uh, defilement there that was a, a, a discharge. It was an unnatural or a, a discharge. Uh, you can think of it as, as a woman's menstrual period uh, that was continuous, that it wasn't just on a monthly cycle. But these would be discharged from the camp. And then also the third thing was the contact with the dead. If you had touched a dead person. Uh, that made you defiled uh, among the camp. Now, it may be a little difficult for you to sort of fathom what's being talked about here when we talk about putting them outside the camp. Now, what this would mean, that if you're married and your husband comes down with a, a sickness or if he comes down with what is thought to be leprosy, he had to be sent outside the camp away from the people. If you had a child that was sick and ill, that child would have to leave the camp. Now, can you imagine how hard this would be for a mom and a dad to do this? But think about it. God is holy. And in order for us to serve a holy God, we have to be holy. And so if there was any defilement at all, it had to be taken outside the camp until that defilement was over. That cleansing period was over. So here you would see parents that would send children. You would see folks that would send brothers and sisters and they would be outside the camp. And you would think how cruel that is for God to be that way. But God was not being cruel by having this done. He was actually teaching the people two different things. First of all, he was teaching them a practical thing. You can think of this as the first hospital. Going outside the camp would be a way in which uh, the rest of the camp would not be sick. Uh, you can kind of uh, think of it was a contagious disease like leprosy. People would be sent out so that you wouldn't give everybody inside the camp leprosy. So you think this was a practical way in which God kept diseases from spreading throughout the people. That they were taken outside the camp until they were well. The second thing that God was teaching us or teaching the people here uh, is a theological reason. And the first thing he's telling us that God is holy. That regardless of whether our sin is intentional or unintentional. We are still to be holy before God. And that this teaches us that God is holy. In Revelation 21.8, it begins to describe those people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these are the unholy folks. And then uh, the other thing that this would teach us in a theological thing is that God is in the camp. That God is present with us. You know, I can't imagine what it was like when Adam and Eve walked in the garden. And the, the Bible tells us that God was with them and he met with them in the midst of the garden each and every day. Now, we as believers are going to experience that again one day in heaven when we're promised in the book of Revelation that God will once again dwell with his people. 
And I can't imagine what that would be like. Because God is much greater than any of us can imagine or describe. But here, God is doing these things in order to protect the people. So if I touched a person with leprosy, or if I came in contact with a dead person that defiled me, I had to go outside of the camp until I was cleansed. But, you know, the one thing that the New Testament teaches us that we have the benefit, and this is what I want us to look at today, is the, the, the difference that Jesus makes when we're around someone that may be unclean. And that's why I want to take you to Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, if you'll turn with me there and we'll come back to the book of Numbers. In Luke chapter 5, we see that, uh, that Jesus superseded all these things, uh, that Jesus didn't become defiled by coming in contact with these folks. Uh, he didn't become unclean, but he made them clean. So let's look at some of the things that, and just a couple of the examples that I have here for you in Luke uh, chapter 5 and verses 12 through 14. Now keep in mind again, if you were a leper, you could not be around folks. You had to, you had to scream out to your top of your lungs and say, unclean, unclean, and you couldn't be around other folks. But look at the difference Jesus makes. In Luke chapter 5, in verses 12 through 13, I want you to listen to what he is saying here, what Luke is telling us. And it's amazing because when we read this in Luke and then we understand uh, Numbers 5, this makes so much sense. In Luke chapter 5, and verse 12, he said, While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now look at what happens here in verse 13. Notice that Jesus wasn't afraid to be made unclean. Look at what Jesus did. And he stretched out his hand and he touched him. But look at what happened. Is it in fact that it didn't make Jesus unclean, but it said, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. So here was someone, and I can imagine, imagine with me the crowd standing around this happening. And the crowd was looking at Jesus and they were saying, is he going to touch him? Because the people were saying, Jesus, don't do this because you'll be unclean. And just imagine the looks on their faces when they saw that not only was Jesus not unclean, but the guy was healed. Praise God. But that he was made clean there at that moment. And that's not the only thing we see where leprosy, we see the lady of discharge on over in the Luke chapter 8. If you'll flip over a couple of pages there with me and look at the, the, the situation here in which Jesus was walking through the crowd. And in Luke chapter 8, Look at me, look at verses, uh, beginning in verse 40, if you will. In verse 40, we see another example of this, uh, of this, uh, this defilement that's mentioned in Numbers. But look at how Jesus interacts with this. And in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8, he says, After this, 
or as soon as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, and they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man, Jairus. He was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore to him to come to his house. And he had an only daughter about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds pressed against him. Now, Luke gives us a little bit of a break here in this story, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. But Luke interjects something here uh, that draws our attention in a different direction uh, of a different healing that was made. In verse 43, And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhaging stopped. And Jesus said, who is the one that touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that the power had gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people, the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So let's stop there for a moment and let's unpack this for just a moment. Notice that this woman didn't make Jesus unclean, but Jesus made her clean. It's when she reached out to touch him, he didn't become clean, unclean, but she became clean. Again, this goes back to the same discharge that's mentioned in the book of Numbers, in which these people had to be put outside the camp. But because of Jesus, she didn't have to be put outside the camp. Up to this point, she couldn't be allowed to go into the holy temple to, to worship because she had this wrong with her. But now she was able to go back in and to worship God because she had been made whole. But let's go on and let's read the, the rest of this. And, and we see that, uh, that Jesus becomes uh, in contact with a dead person. In verse 49, he said, While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. But now going down to verse 53, or go up to verse 53 with me. Notice here what happens now. The little girl has died. And in verse 53, and he began to tell the folks there that she hasn't died, that she's simply asleep. In verse 53, and they begin laughing at him, knowing that she had died. But he said, however, now again, stop before we read that phrase. If I touch a dead person, I'm unclean. But notice here. However, he took her by the hand and called saying, Child, arise. So again, Jesus didn't become unclean, but he became, he made her clean. And the same is true with us and our salvation experience today. If we're children of God we were people that deserved to be put outside the camp. But because of Jesus, we can still reside inside the camp. We can still come and worship God. 
because we are made whole by Jesus. Jesus wasn't made unclean. Jesus made other people clean. So we see that Jesus resolves that, that issue for us in Numbers chapter 5. But let's look on now to part 2, if you will, uh, verses 5 through 10. Uh, back in Numbers chapter 5, if you want to turn back there with me. And we're going to look at deliberate sin. These are sins in which I knowingly commit. Uh, these are not sins that, uh, that, that I had no control over, but these are sins that I, that I knew that I was doing. And so look with me as far as the deliberate sins that were talked about here. In Numbers 5 and verses 5 through 10. Follow along as I read these. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sin which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add one-fifth to it, and give it to him who he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every con contribution pertaining or pertaining to the holy gifts of the son of Israel, which they offer the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest shall become his. Now, in order for us to get a better understanding of, of this intentional sin, uh, I want us to think about, or if you want to turn with me uh, to the book of Second Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, we're going to see the first step in which we are to take when we are trying to be reconciled back to God because of an intentional sin. Uh, so the first blank there, if you're following along in your listening guide, is confession, is confession. Now let's look at the, how that how that looks in real life by looking at a biblical example in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're familiar with the story, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, David uh, has a, an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Uh, he was not where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to have been out uh, with his army, but he chose to remain at the palace. And because of that, he noticed a woman bathing. And he became lustful after her and invited her into the royal palace and they had a relationship there, and she became pregnant. He tried to conceal that pregnancy by having uh, Bathsheba's husband come back and, and uh, be with her. But Uriah, being the godly man he was, he couldn't uh, feel that that was right for him to enjoy the pleasures of life and his fellow soldiers be out battling in war. So that little plan that David thought he'd have Uriah come back and be with Bathsheba and all would be well didn't work out for him. So he even made another plan that he would have Uriah move to the front of the battlefield to where Uriah would actually be killed. And so now notice the, the sin that David started with by not being where he was supposed to be. He lusted after another woman. 
And then uh, the, the, the effects of that sin brought about a, a child. And he tried to cover that up by having a, a man killed. And so notice how his sins begin to pile up. But notice here what he says when Nathan comes back. And this is the thing that I like. Nathan the prophet appears before David. And he tells David this story uh, about this rich man uh, that had a lamb or that he stole a lamb from a poor man when he had lots of lambs for himself. And David was infuriated by this. And he says that that man deserves to die. And you know, I can't help to think, and my, and my wife knows I like this part, because when Nathan came to David and he was telling him this story, and David got all puffed up and said, this man deserves to die, I can imagine that Nathan being this frail, old prophet, and I can imagine a bony finger coming out of his pocket and him shaking it in David's face and saying, you are the man. And can you imagine the guilt that just overcame David right then when he realized that he had been caught, that he realized that God knew his sin. But notice here, when we sin intentionally, notice here what David said when he replied to Nathan. You know, we think sometimes when we sin intentionally, we are just hurting the person we're sinning against. But notice the first thing that David mentions in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in verse 13. Look at that, what he says. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against who? The Lord. So when we sin intentionally, first of all, we sin against God first and foremost. And then we sin against that that person or others in which we have uh, defiled them. But keep in mind, again, that we serve a holy God. And he requires us to be holy. And so when we think that we're getting away with things, we're really not getting away with things because God knows. Now, notice here, uh, there, still in that first section of part two, Notice here that David knew he deserved death in verse 5. He knew about restitution. And we're going back to Numbers chapter 5. And he knew, uh, David, before his confession, we are privileged to have this recorded for us in Scripture. Uh, but David records his life before his confession. And he told us or gives us another psalm after his confession. So I want us to look. And I know I'm having you to jump through uh, the Bible here with us, but it's good, good practice. Uh, but in Psalm chapter 32, let's read what David's life was like before his confession. In David, or in Psalm chapter 32. In Psalm 32... He gives us some insight into what he was going through before he confessed his sin. Uh, look at verses 3 through 5 with me in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. 
I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So notice here, before he confessed his sins, his body wasted away. And this is true for us today. We can, we can cause sickness to become upon ourselves by unconfessed sin, by things that, that we know that we need to make right before God that can call us, cause us physical ailments. They can cause us broken relationships. So here what David's giving us insight to is that all these things were going wrong for me before I confess my sin. Now, if you go over a couple of chapters in Psalm 51, which is one of my favorite psalms in all the scripture. In Psalm 51, he describes his life after his confession. Notice here what he says in verses 1 through 2, and then we'll go up to verses 10 through 12. But if we look at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 2, notice what he says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now up to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Now notice that what David says that before his confession and after his confession was two different things. And that it restored that relationship between him and God uh, because of the confession of his sin. But Numbers chapter 5 tells us that there is another thing that we need to do when we deliberately sin. And the second thing on your listening guide in verse 7 is that we need to make restitution. Restitution is what we need uh, there when we deliberately sin. Now, think if you, with me if you will. The first thing that we talk about here at rest, restitution is, is this is the aspect of horizontal reconciliation because of our sin. And in a moment, we're going to look at the vertical uh, restitution there and, and the aspect of re reconciling before God. But before we have the, the sacrifice or the offering, if you will, there is restitution that needs to be made. On over in the New Testament, if you'll remember, it says that if you have any sin or if you have any ought against anyone, you need to go and make that right before you come back and serve the Lord. This is a little bit about what it's talking about, is that you have to make that reconciliation on a horizontal uh, level with all your fellow people, uh, your fellow human beings there. So we are to move about uh, as making uh, restitution back to that. Uh, the greatest example I think of as a, uh, an, an example of this is the story of Zacchaeus. Now, you may remember Zacchaeus as being a Bible story, maybe in Sunday school, and telling you about Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Uh, but uh, he gives us a, a tremendous example of the, this second point of restitution. On over in Luke chapter 19, if you want to turn over there with me, in Luke chapter 19, 
in verses 1 through 8. And notice here what Zacchaeus does is first he confesses his sin and then he goes to move about to make restitution for that sin because he knows that in order for him to be in right reconciliation with God, that he has to do those tasks as well. Uh, I can't help to think that being a Jew that he was, that, that he would n remember the things that he was taught through Numbers uh, chapter 5. But notice what the, the conversion of Zacchaeus in chapter 19. And he entered into Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Then Jesus came to the place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for the day I must stay in your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So notice here Zacchaeus gives an example of restitution. That he becomes so excited about what Jesus has done in his life. That all these things that he thought was important before are now not that meaningful. And that's the way we are. When we realize who we are in the eyes of God. And we realize that God still allows to let us live. Wow, we should be thankful each and every day because of that. Well, one last thing on your listening guide that we want to cover in, in Numbers chapter 5. And that is the part of atonement. Atonement is where that there is a, a means for humankind and to be place back in a harmonious relationship with God. And so look with me there in verse 8 where it talks about the atonement. And that's the third blank on your listening guide is atonement. And this is the vertical aspect of the re reconciliation of sin. Remember, the horizontal is when we provide restitution. For example, if we stole a car, we would go to jail. We would serve time in jail as part of the restitution of that, of that sin in which we've committed. So here is the, the vertical aspect uh, of that we are to atone uh, for the sins in which we did. And we have this atonement through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Uh, and we see this in 1 John in chapter 2 and verse 2. Uh, but I want us to, I know I put verses 1, uh, or verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 2, but I want us to look at the first three verses of First John. And so you can get an idea about why it is necessary not only for us to confess, not only for us to, to seek restitution for our sinfulness, 
but we have to rely upon the, the giving of the atonement of Jesus Christ of what he did for our sins. And notice here what's said in 1 John chapter 2 in verses 1 through 3. Let me turn over there quickly. 1 John <clears throat> First John chapter 2 in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And notice here verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. Now that is a fancy theological word for he is a substitute. What Jesus did for us, when we deserve to be put outside the camp, Jesus went outside the camp for us. When we deserve to be taken out of the holy place, Jesus put us back in the holy place. So I hope today that as we look at this and as we close that we understand that, that we serve a holy God and He doesn't take sin lightly. He doesn't have a grading scale, if you will, as the things that He will tolerate and the things He don't. But understand that we serve a holy God that still wants us to be as holy as He did those children of Israel back in the book of Numbers. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being able to share your word with these great people today. I want to thank you for Carabo and Kenzie and their ministry here. I pray that you will just continue to lead them and guide them and give them discernment on how they can best lead these folks. But Lord, I want to pray also for these folks themselves. Because, Lord, so oftentimes we don't recognize the seriousness of our relationship to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will instill a desire for us to be pleasing and holy to you. And, Lord, that when we sin deliberately, we will confess, we will make restitution. And, Lord, we will rely upon the saving grace that you granted us through the salvation promise of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, Heavenly Father, be with us this day, I pray. Amen. Thank you. Carabo.